Please turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the 14th Psalm. Lewis Drummond, professor of evangelism at the Southern Seminary, Baptist Seminary in Louisville, tells of how when he was a college student, uh, there was a professor at the college there in the class that he was attending who loved to disparage the Christian faith and to mock it and no one dared to answer him back. And even though Lewis himself was trained in debate and was a Christian, he didn't dare say a word. Matter of fact, the students often would even seem to snicker along and join in almost with the professor. But then one day, a young freshman girl challenged him in class, and she said, "Ah, why are you so uh, why are you so biased against the Christian faith?" He was taken aback. He said, "Because it's nothing but mythology." And she said, what I believe may seem foolish to you, but to me it's far more true than anything I've heard or read in this class. And he said, well, let's talk about your faith. Do you really believe in someone you cannot see? If so, surely you realize that you're not being scientific, but simply superstitious. And she said, well, I can feel God's effect in my life. I can see his fingerprints on the world, the beauty of nature, the gift of thought, a heart capable of loving. I know of no other way the universe could exist without a God who made it all. You talk of science, but there's no purely scientific explanation for Christian experience, for beauty, for music, for intelligence, for love, for the very first cause of the universe itself. These things are real, and the Bible explains what science does not. Well, that brings the issue up about uh, atheism. In this psalm, the psalmist is struck and burdened by all of the corruption and immorality and evil and wickedness that he sees in society. And it starts a train of thought. And he, he starts off and talks about, he describes, gives a description of human depravity as universal. But he traces it back to its root. In verse 1 of Psalm 14, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. The word fool in the Hebrew is Nabal, and here it's used in a collective sense. He's describing the whole human race as fools. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. Now, there are two kinds of atheism. There's theoretical atheism and there's practical atheism. Not too many theoretical atheists around, although they are very influential. Uh, in the Humanist Manifesto, you'd have a statement of theoretical atheism. And if you were to look at this statement, they are very blunt about it. Uh, and they're influential men, such as John Dewey. Uh, the father of progressive education, etc. B.F. Skinner, the behavioral psychologist. Lester Mondale. They say tradition religions, traditions religions, inhibit humans from helping themselves or experiencing their full potential ability. No deity will save us. There is no God. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. Traditional religions are obstacles to human progress, and on and on. Well, that's theoretical atheism. 
Another way of expressing it, but not quite so bluntly, is to say, you believe in God, you find that meaningful and helpful to you. I don't believe in God, uh, I don't find it meaningful. It's true for you, it's not true for me. Well, no, either there's a God or there isn't a God. It doesn't matter whether it's meaningful to you or not. We're dealing with the existence of God. Now, years ago, a man, a philosopher by the name of Anthony Flew, gave a parable and went something like this. He said, two explorers are going through the jungle and they suddenly hit a garden. A lot of flowers there, a lot of weeds. One of the explorers says, you know, I believe there must be a gardener who tends this plot. The other one said, I don't think there's a gardener. They said, well, let's, let's set a watch and see. So they, they try to check and see if a gardener comes, and they don't see one. And the believer says, well, I believe he's coming. We're just not catching him. I mean, look at that garden. I, I, look at the flowers. I believe that there's a gardener. And so they set up a, a fence that will go off, an electric fence, and alarm if anybody comes, and they get some bloodhounds to catch it if he sneaks in. And the alarm never goes off. The bloodhounds never bark. And the believer still says, I think there is a gardener. Maybe he's invisible. Maybe he doesn't give off any scent. But I'm sure there's a gardener. And the other one says, now this gardener that is invisible, that doesn't set off the alarms, that doesn't have any scent, how does he differ from an imaginary gardener? No gardener at all. But of course, in the parable, uh, the world is the garden, or the universe is the garden. And there are some weeds, aren't there? But there are some flowers. And even the weeds are designed. You looked at a weed recently? And this garden uh, has got amazing things in it. Uh, it's a beautifully designed garden with a cycle of seasons, an incredibly stocked larder, a multiplicity of perfectly and intricately engineered creatures with marvelous instincts. Reading a little book entitled God in Creation by Bob Devine. And he talks about some of these marvelous instincts of the creatures. How an egg breathes, the tundra, the monarch butterfly. Here come the red cells, George the giraffe. You want an engineering feat. You studied George the giraffe. The eastern skunk cabbage, the salmon, the 17 year Cicada. Let me tell you about the 17-year cicada. Cicada is a little insect about the size of a large fly, giant fly, about an inch long. The female has a little prick on her tail that she can puncture tree limbs with. And she will puncture the tree limb, usually a dead one or a dying one, and, and lay her larvae there. Hundreds of them. After she gets through, it looks like somebody came along and sawed the limb a little bit in different spots. Those larvae, uh, in a relatively brief period of time, uh, burrow out and fall off. They're six one-hundredths of an inch long at that point. And when they float to the ground, hit the ground, they burrow two feet deep in the ground. And they find a root, tree root down there, and they suck the sap of the tree root. 
and they grow. They shed their skin five times in the process of growing. They grow for 17 years there. 17 years to the day they come up. They come up in the evening. They climb up a tree, a tall tree that same night. They shed their skin again. Uh, then a little electrical impulse uh, on the male gives off uh, a sound uh, from a sort of a tambourine that he has, and he attracts his mate. They mate, thousands of them. Uh, they live four weeks and die, another 17 years. Now, i got a question for you. How do it know when the 17 years is up? <laughs> Marvelous, marvelous design everywhere. But the atheist looks at that and says, how does your gardener who is invisible differ from an imaginary gardener? Chance did this. R.C. Sproul tells about hearing a speaker on one occasion who talked about the chances of life having developed and uh, the creatures developing and he said, you know, the odds against it happening by chance were just a zillion to one. But it happened by chance. Isn't that amazing that by chance life came into being and you developed by chance? At the close of the hour, Sproul went up to him and said, let me ask you a question. These, these things that happened by chance. He said, uh, could you describe chance for me? He said, what do you mean? He said, well, what does it look like? Well, it doesn't look like anything. So what does it weigh? What are its dimensions? How high is it? How, how wide is it? He said, well, chance is not a thing. It doesn't weigh. Well, how powerful is it? Well, it's not a thing. He said, oh, let me see. Chance is no thing? He says, right, chance is no thing. He said, well, how does no thing differ from nothing? So chance is nothing. Chance chance can't do anything. Chance can't produce anything. Chance can't produce design. You've got to have a designer. You've got to have an intelligent power person. If he produces personality, he's got to be a person. can't have water rising higher than its source. Can you have an it produce a you? No way. Well, if there is no God, where did the idea come from that there's a God? Of course, there are many answers to where the idea came from. Ludwig Feuerbach, a theologian in the 19th century, said the concept came from man dreaming and wishing that there were a God. It's sort of a wish fulfillment. He projects it. There's no God, but he, he just projects one. And he feels protected. Marx said... Uh, it's an invention of the capitalistic class. It's part of the class struggle. And the, the capitalist, the bourgeoisie, created the concept of religion to keep the proletariat from revolting. It, it operates as an opiate. It deadens the pain of being exploited. And so they invented it. They tell them that they'll get theirs by and by in the sky. And then they won't revolt now. But you know, question, the question of the origin of religion isn't a matter of a question of psychology, it's a question of history. To say that man could have dreamed up God is not to say that that's how it happened. 
And uh, actually, the shoe may be on the other foot. may be that man doesn't want there to be a God. And so he persuades himself there isn't one. That's Romans' explanation. That's Romans 1. Paul's explanation there. Paul says in Romans 1, verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down the truth and unrighteousness. They know the truth, but they resist the truth. Because uh, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. God having showed it to him, to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they're without excuse. Although he's invisible, he's clearly seen that he's there, that he is an eternal, powerful God. His Godhead and his eternal power is clearly seen from creation, from the design, from the incredible distances, etc. Therefore, they are without excuse. Man resists that knowledge. It says, for when they knew God, they knew that. They glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The shoe's on the other foot. Psychology makes man deny the existence of God. You see, man is... The the God of the Bible is repugnant to the natural man. He does not want God to be like that. Do you remember what he's like? Did you listen to that anthem this morning? Sounding chariot shakes the sky. He makes the clouds his throne. There all the stores of lightning lie till vengeance darts them down. His nostrils breathe out fiery streams and from his awful tongue a sovereign voice divides the flames and thunder rolls along. Think, O my soul, the dreadful day when this incensed God shall rend the sky and burn the sea and fling his wrath abroad. Man doesn't like a God like that, and he persuades himself that he doesn't exist. Augustine said it like this, No man says there is no God, but he whose interest is there should be none. An atheist can't find God for the same reason that a police that a thief can't find a policeman. Doesn't want to find him. Man is perfectly capable of devising religion. Now he does it all the time. But the question is, if he devised one, would it be the Christian religion? Would God be like that? R. C. Sproul, uh, in his little book. If there is a God, why are there atheists? Discusses that point. He says there's no dispute with Freud, Nietzsche, etc. on the question of man's ability to create a God according to his own psychological desire or need. This is precisely what biblical Christianity asserts is the case. There is no dispute that gods so created will reflect the desires of the human creators, as Feuerbach maintained. A dispute is located in the question of whether or not men would be naturally disposed to create the Christian God. Though it's freely acknowledged and granted that men would be pleased to receive the benefits that only God can give them, it is highly questionable whether men desire the God who makes these benefits possible. Men would apparently rather die in their sins than live forever in obedience. They would rather hide behind trees than face the penetrating gaze of God. 
They would prefer moral anarchy to the law of God. Now, we've been talking about theoretical atheism. But there's a second form of atheism, practical atheism. That's where, with the lips, the person says, I believe in God. But in the way he lives, he practically denies it. And the great mass of people around us are practical atheists. And many in the church are practical atheists. They inquire about any given pattern of behavior, whether or not it will advance their cause. They don't inquire whether or not it's pleasing to God. One half of the babies that are conceived today in America are aborted. One half, one out of every two. Are there a lot of practical atheists around? Are there a lot of people saying, I'm going to live the way that's convenient to me? Men do in secret things they wouldn't do in the presence of their fellow man. And the language of their heart is, doth God know? Practical atheist. Now, the psalmist says, why, why all the corruption? He says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And the result of that is corrupt living. Notice, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The universality of rebellion against God, of depravity. Theoretical or practical atheism leads to immorality, to the doing away with moral standards, to the setting aside of God's commandments. It's interesting, uh, in Lewis Drummond's book, where the young lady takes on the professor in the classroom, the next question that the professor asked her was... I suppose you believe in obeying archaic Victorian morality as a part of your Christian beliefs. The denial of God leads to doing away with morals. The freshman hesitated before saying, If you're referring to moral laws like the Ten Commandments, then I do believe in them. I'm not sure that that's the same thing as Victorian morality. I believe we should do our best to obey God's moral laws as we must obey scientific laws. When you break a scientific law, you hurt yourself. When you break a moral law, you hurt yourself. Over 5,000 years of history show that when societies honor the Ten Commandments, they usually prosper, and when they do not, they normally decay and fall. This is a partial explanation why our own campus is plagued with problems of dishonesty, drugs, alcohol, and venereal disease. If the Ten Commandments were obeyed, would we have these problems? Holiday Inn. The largest user of X-rated films. And I mean filth. I read a detailed description of the filth that you can go to the Holiday Inn and sit and look to, to your heart's content. Why do they do that? The customers want it. We'll get more customers that way. Romans 1 there goes on to say that because man turns away from the knowledge of God, that God gives him over to corrupt himself into all type of evil things where they misuse the, their bodies in various ways. Now, God reviews the scene 
of man's corruption. In verse 2, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. God's inspection, God's conclusion. None that doeth good, no, not one. You may remember Lucy and Charlie Brown. Lucy and Charlie Brown are talking, and uh, Lucy says, little girls are made of sugar and spice and everything nice. About that time, she hauls off and slugs Charlie Brown, knocks him flat. She said, that's what little girls are made of. And that's what God says. God says, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. They're all gone aside. They're together become filthy. If we had a modern poet writing about man, he would describe man as so great and he puts someone on the moon. God looks down and here's God's description. Here's how God sees man. That's a description of the universality of man's depravity. Notice the anticipation of God's judgment on the unrepentant. In verse 4, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who can eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation righteous. You have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Notice the division of mankind now into two groups. We started off with all men as fools. There's none good, universal depravity. But all of a sudden we've got man in two groups. You've got workers of iniquity and you've got my people, God's people. You say, well, that's a conflict. No, it's not a conflict. It's a change. All men by nature are corrupt. The wicked go astray from the womb, speaking lies. Psalm 51. It says uh, uh, that we are all by nature children of wrath. But some men are changed by God. Some men repent. Some men make the Lord their refuge. Notice the description there. Because the Lord is his refuge. Verse 6. Some men acknowledge their guilt before God. And they come to God's provision for washing them whiter than snow. They come to the lamb that God provided. The sacrifice. That through the Lamb they could be forgiven. The Lamb pictured a Lamb-like person, Jesus Christ, whom God would send for their sin and our sin, to die, His Son, who would die for our sins. And through faith in Jesus Christ and repentance, turning from our sin, God would forgive freely as a gift. And you would become one of His people. So now we have this division. Notice the description of the unrepentant. They're called workers of iniquity. They work Iniquity. They do their will versus God's will, and they keep on doing it. Uh, Have they no knowledge? Don't they understand that God will require it? Don't they understand with whom they have to do? They persecute God's people. They eat them up as bread. They don't worship the Lord. They call not upon the Lord. There's a description of them. But uh, notice the reaction of fear that they experience on occasion. Verse 5. There were they in great fear. On occasion, these unrepentant sense something that makes them fear greatly. What is it? 
It says, For God is in the generation of the righteous. When they're persecuting God's people, suddenly God manifests Himself one way or another on occasion. We looked at the 18th Psalm last week where David told about the Lord's deliverance when he was being persecuted. He said, The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock. May the God of my salvation be exalted. God would save David from his persecutors. He was the living God, and this would be sensed by his persecutors. Now, those who rebel against God sense his presence on occasion, sense his reality, and it causes great fear, as it should. Now, uh, we see uh, the description of the universality. We see uh, the anticipation of judgment, God's judgment on the unrepentant. Notice the petition for the speedy deliverance of God's people. Verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, Israel shall be glad. David says, oh, that God would move on behalf of his afflicted people, that he would move from Zion. Zion was the mountain on which Jerusalem was built. It became a symbol of the residence of God on earth, so to speak, as the tabernacle was there and later the temple. Oh, that he would move, God would move on behalf of his people. Then Israel would rejoice. And that's the hard cry of all of us as we look at this wicked world. Oh, that God would intervene, that he would step in on behalf of his people. And he will. And he does. David uh, pictures it for us, and we can see uh, why Augustine said, that shortly after becoming a Christian, he read the Psalms and he said, how they did animate me. If possible, I wanted to read them to the whole world as a protest against the pride of the human race. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He wanted to read that to the whole world. Oh, you are foolish. Whether your atheism is theoretical or practical, you are a fool when you live corruptly as if there is no God. We face the same problem. We're burdened with the same thing that burdened the psalmist here. All of the evil and corruption in our society. What's the cause of it? What's the root of it? Atheism. Either theoretical or practical atheism. What can you do about it? He doesn't really give that, except as he speaks here of those who... Make the Lord their refuge. Some men change. How do they change? What produces the change? Dave Simmons did our seminar this weekend on the fathers and their children, the family. Dave Simmons shared with us how he was an atheist, a theoretical atheist. He didn't believe in God. As a student at Georgia Tech, he'd grown up an atheist. And uh, there was a young man there who determined to change that, God helping him. Dave played on the football team at Georgia Tech, later on went on to play for several professional teams, including the Dallas Cowboys. This young man decided that he was going to win Dave to the Lord because Dave was the worst person on the football team. And if he could win Dave, it had to make an impression on the others. So he chose Dave as his roommate. 
And then he began to work on him, and he began to witness to him, and he began to pray for him. And Dave wanted no part of it, would tell him to shut up. Finally, uh, uh, the young man brought in someone else to help him. And together one night they sat on Dave's bed with Dave, and this new young man went over a little book, The Four Spiritual Laws. God loves you, Dave, and has a wonderful plan for your life. Man is sinful and separated from God. Thus, he cannot know and experience God's love and plan for his life. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him, you can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. But you must personally receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Dave threw him out and got into bed and couldn't sleep. He thought. He thought until 4 a.m. in the morning. And this thought kept occurring. If there is a God, I know one thing for sure. I don't know Him. And if there is a God, there really is a God, and you can have a personal relationship with Him, like they said, I know a second thing. I want to know Him. So he got up, got on his knees, said, God, if you're there, and if this thing that they told me is true about Jesus Christ being your Son who died for my sin, and if I would repent, and put my faith in you, you would forgive me, and you'd come and live in me. I want you to do that. If that's true, I put my trust in Jesus Christ, and I want you to come into my life. Didn't feel a thing, got in bed, went to sleep. Went to class the next morning, sitting in class, a thought came into his head that never entered his head before. This was a thought. I wonder if the professor there knows God like I know God. Went out to play football that afternoon. Looked at the coach. This thought came into his head. I wonder if the coach knows God like I know God. That was the first conversion. Bill Curry, the other linebacker, got converted that same year, along with 13 other men on the football team at Georgia Tech who got converted. What can we do about it? Pick out the meanest guy you know and choose him for a roommate. That's what you <laughs> Go after him. Get trained. Get equipped. Take the E-training. Train someone else. That's how it happens. That's how lives are changed. That's how people shift from the work of iniquity to the Lord's people. And as they shift, why changes are made in society. That's one tremendous thing we can do. It's not the only thing we can do. But it's a crucial thing, an important thing. Are we doing it? Maybe you're here and you're one of those practical atheists. The fool has said in his heart, what are you saying in your heart? What are you saying by the way you live? Not with your lips, but in your heart. The fool has said in his heart, I can get away with it. I won't have to answer. The fool. You a fool? Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed... uh, Have you been uh, a practical atheist, maybe, or a theoretical? Have you been denying that there's an invisible gardener? Or have you believed in the invisible gardener but thought you could be right with him while you lived as your own boss? Are you willing to do as uh, Dave Simmons and really turn your life over to Jesus Christ? Why not pray right now in your heart like this? 
If you've never genuinely done this, God, I really want to know You. And I realize I have to do that on Your terms. I surrender my will to You. And I trust You to forgive me, to wash me whiter than snow through Jesus Christ. Come into my life. Help me to know You. Maybe you've already done that and the commitment you need to make is to be involved in being trained to share your faith with others or to train others. Father, seal these commitments. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.